Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Jim Antel, who is politics editor for The Washington Examiner, and we're going to be talking about the furious war within the Republican Party and the strange rehabilitation of George W. Bush. So, Jim, uh, President George W. Bush gave a speech yesterday in which he seemed to be taking not very subtle uh, pot shots at President Trump and the sort of ethno-nationalism of Trump's movement. Uh, is it fair to say the Republican Party is at war with itself at the moment? Well, I think ever since Donald Trump came on the scene, there's been something of a civil war within the Republican Party. I think you could argue that Trump's presidential campaign was a hostile takeover of the party. Now, obviously, some of this predates Trump in that there was a lot of discontent among the grassroots, uh, I think, uh, with the agenda that was being pursued by the party's governing class and the party's donor class, which people uh, you know, refer to as being the Republican establishment. Mm. I think if, if you're going to, to define the Republican establishment in any way, it would be that. It would be the, the people who give the party money, the party strategists, uh, and the people who are involved in, in governing, whether that's the congressional leadership or people who are, who are Republican bureaucrats when they hold the White House. Those groups within the party never supported Trump. And in fact, uh, they organized against him to some extent during the primaries, and many of them withheld their support, even in the general election. And that was very true of people around George W. Bush, uh, Trump's ideological agenda, to the extent that he was ideological, uh, was a reaction to some of Bush's innovations on conservatism, which were a little bit more friendly to immigration, uh, a little bit uh, adopting a lower threshold for the use of uh, U.S. military force, uh, some nation-building exercises. Of Trump, to some extent, was a reaction uh, against all of that. And as Trump's presidency has, has sputtered to a certain extent, I think you're seeing people like George W. Bush and John McCain kind of doing a counterstrike in return. And how popular are these people? I mean, they they're obviously both have very high profiles, but how popular would you say they are with, with Americans? But let's start with Bush. Well, I think the Trump presidency has to some extent done what would have seemed impossible, you know, 10 years ago in that it's rehabilitated George W. Bush's public image. Yeah. I think people are much more, uh, uh, they they think much more highly of, of President Bush's character in contrast with President Trump. Uh, they they like his rejection of of, of racism and his, his general unwillingness to even sort of uh, play footsie or sort of wink at at, at racists uh, as Trump has at times been accused of doing. Uh, they like his moral clarity uh, in, in some areas, uh, his willingness to turn the other cheek and take the high road which are things that, that Trump tends not to do in controversies. So I think in terms of his overall popularity with the country, Trump has helped liberals fall in love with George W. Bush. Uh, in terms of the Republican Party, I think it, it is certainly possible and, and seemed to be the case during the primaries that Trump may actually still be more popular among Republican voters uh, than Bush is in 2017. Yes. And I mean, I've spoken to American liberals who are now not just nostalgic for Bush, but nostalgic for 
the America that existed for George, when George W. Bush was president. They, they, they sort of look back on it as a almost a kind of golden time now, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think some of that is, is sort of self-serving. Uh, I mean, these people were calling Bush Hitler at the time that, that he yes. uh, was president. And, you know, I think this requires overlooking Iraq. I think it requires overlooking some civil liberties violations that occurred under the Bush administration. I think it requires overlooking uh, some of the ways they handled the intelligence. Now, all of that did come in the context of an unprecedented terrorist attack on American soil. So, you know, I'm not arguing that the Bush was malevolent in doing these things, but they were they were still arguably bad things. And certainly most liberals at that time were arguing that they were they were bad and that this was a very bad political climate. They They thought that the Bush era was a bad political climate at the time. And it's it's only taken the Trump administration to make them reappraise that. Now, some of that may be an honest reappraisal. Uh, and some of that, I do think, is some degree of political opportunism, such as when liberals have tried to reclaim Ronald Reagan. And the, the Republican president of the past, who's no longer in power, uh, is held up as this cudgel with which to beat whatever Republicans are in power at the time. Yes, because, I mean, you could say of, of Reagan, actually, that he was uh, reviled, wasn't he, particularly in, the, in his early days as a president by by mainstream America to, to a large extent and and now is sort of is universally loved almost. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Reagan was was denounced in terms that are, are very reminiscent of, of, of how some people uh, condemn Trump. I mean, he was supposedly going to uh, get us into a nuclear war union. Uh, he was too reckless, uh, too ideological to really be too right wing to really be president. Uh, that his economic program was going to cause hyperinflation. Uh, and while you know there are certainly many things about the Reagan administration that liberals would still criticize today, uh, many of those dire things obviously didn't happen. Uh, the Reagan economic program, uh, you know, revived the American economy. We won the Cold War uh, without any military confrontation, a significant one at least. Uh, you know, and now he's a universally loved figure. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen with Trump, but it's one of the reasons why I think Republican voters have not really paid a lot of attention to the rest of the public's criticisms of Trump. But certainly within Team Trump, they can they can keep that story going, can't they? They can you know point to the stock market, uh, perhaps the destruction of ISIS, and and say that you know while everybody hates Trump, these great achievements are happening. Right. And I think you you can also say that some of the things that haven't happened under Trump, uh, Republicans in Congress deserve at least some share of the blame for that. Uh, you know, the debate on that will be and that's another reason why you're seeing this GOP civil war, uh, because there is sort of a blame game happening among Republicans themselves because they have unified control of the federal government, but haven't passed very many bills. Uh, you know, how much of this is because they don't have normal presidential leadership mm -hmm. and how much of this is Republicans were running on certain agenda items like a, repealing Obamacare uh, that go back as far as seven years and then weren't ready to do it when they actually had the power to do so. So, you know, that's a debate that's going on. And I think that's continued to fuel the GOP civil war between its more establishment minded members and those allied with Trump. And, and looking ahead to the to the midterm elections coming up next year, I mean, there's going to be quite a lot of battles, aren't there, between establishment type uh, GOP candidates and what you might call more Tea Party Trumpist 
candidates? Well, I think that, yes, and, and that's been a, a trend within the Republican Party for quite some time, uh, really even dating back to, to Bush's presidency, where you were starting to see conservatives try to defeat uh, more establishment-minded Republicans in the primaries, especially in safe red states where they were likely to win the general election, mm. uh, although you know, some of these primary challenges cost them some uh, general elections as well. But what I think is unique this time is Steve Bannon is trying to get primary candidates who will be uniquely pro-Trump and specifically anti-Mitch McConnell, somebody, people who are committed to ousting McConnell as Senate Majority Leader. And that's a little bit different than, than what some of the Tea Party challenges have been like in the past. It remains to be seen how much success Bannon can actually have with this project. Yes, because, I mean, would you, is it fair to say, is it sort of prejudicial to Bannon to say that actually he really does want to destroy the Republican Party, perhaps in order to save it, but he's, he's certainly on a mission to destroy it as it is? He certainly is on a mission to destroy it as it is, while at the same time using it as a vehicle for the changes that he would like. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that that's a very difficult needle to thread. But he started he started making public appearances in a way that he didn't before. I mean, he did a speech at the before the Alabama state election. Since he has been out of the White House, since he since he left the White House as, as President Trump's chief strategist, he has been a public figure in his own right to a greater degree than ever before, than even before he entered the White House. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that not reporting Trump anymore is a sort of liberating event for him, yeah. and also because it's required. So Bannon really is the person most responsible for giving some kind of ideological content to Trump. Trumpism is, a, is as much about Steve Bannon, if not more so, than it is about President Trump. I mean, with Trump, there's always been the debate over whether his appeal was due to this broader populist nationalist trend that we're seeing throughout the Western world, or is it really more about his personality, his business acumen, uh, his history as a reality TV star? Were those things more important? Was it a little bit more of a cult of personality? Mm. Bannon has been trying to put some populist nationalist ideological meat on the bones of, of Trumpism. And by having other candidates who are not Trump run in these Republican primaries on that platform, it's really putting to a test how much it is about the ideas. And do you know how, I mean, I've heard different things as to how much uh, Trump still communicates with Bannon, uh, from sort of various people who say they still communicate on a daily basis to other people who say they're not talking at all. Do you have any sense of how close those two still are? I believe they still communicate. Um, I think the presence of White House Chief of Staff John Kelly would probably make it unlikely that it's every day. Yeah. Uh, and it does seem like there is, you know, there is some space between Trump and Bannon on, on, on how much they really want to do this, this project of primarying pretty much all of the incumbent Republican senators, which includes some people who vote with the Trump administration over 90 percent of the time. Um, you know, Trump does seem to have some daylight between him and Bannon on that. Is a little bit less enthusiastic about it, although he's been pretty frustrated with Republicans on Capitol Hill. So, uh, you know, I think it's clear that they still are in some degree of communication, but they're also pursuing uh, different agenda items in a way that, that suggests that it's not some kind of daily coordination. Yes. Do you think it's a deliberate tactic by Trump to present himself to the Republican Party as the only man that can... 
save them from a Bannonite, you know, Tea Party type takeover? Right. Well, I think that Trump has a difficult challenge ahead of him because, on the one hand, obviously has some degree of sympathy for what Bannon is doing and is pretty frustrated by the pace of legislative change in Washington, something that he wasn't really used to and, and familiar with. And also, I think Trump has this tendency to view the members of Congress at, who are in his party as subordinates, and he's the boss, and they should be doing what he says when, in fact, constitutionally, they're a co-equal branch of government, and they have their own constituencies to represent and their own ideas about how to do things. So I think Trump has sympathy for what Bannon is doing, but he also does need to get things done legislatively. So if you're going to pass tax reform, if you're going to at some point revisit health care, uh, if you're going to pass anything on immigration, especially with this this uh, DACA deadline coming up in March, uh, if you're going to be doing those sorts of things and sort of putting points on the board and piling up victories, you need to be able to work with the Republicans who are already there. And there is a degree to which Bannon's uh, project could complicate that. It could also complicate the Republicans' ability to retain Congress. Uh, and if they lose the Senate, which even in a bad year next year is not necessarily a foregone conclusion because the map is so favorable for Republicans. Yes. Um, but if they lose the Senate, then Trump loses his ability to get even his appointees confirmed without a whole lot of trouble. So, you know, while Trump clearly would like to see some of these Bannonite uh, primary challengers win, because it would probably strengthen his hand on Capitol Hill. He also doesn't really want to upset the apple cart entirely because he needs some of these people. They, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, as much as they may be antagonistic toward one another, uh, their political fortunes really rise and fall together.